Hello again. Welcome back. Welcome into Country Roads Confidential here at Earsports.com, part of the 24-7 Sports Network. Happy Friday to you. Chris Anderson, I'm not a very tall person like you, so I have to stand on my tiptoes a lot. And as I do, I can see something off on the horizon. Do you see it? Is it football, Mike? It's football and men's and women's basketball. Yes. Sooner than later. Just those three. We can get to that in a second, but let's put cynicism aside. We've been looking for a date or some sort of direction otherwise. Um, It does not mean that West Virginia will be back on campus on June 1st, but maybe not long after that. But the beginning of the end or the beginning of the end of the beginning, I'm not sure how to phrase this, but it's a change finally. Yeah, finally there's a a date to kind of put with what everybody had been hoping for. I don't want to say expecting. I think we've been trending this direction. Good news after good news with a lot of things. And um, it, it there's a date, but it's not the date, I think, is what some people might need a little clarification on. Uh, that It was cleared to allow you to, which doesn't mean they're going to. It doesn't mean they're even going to start the quote-unquote voluntary return. Um, it, that sounds like it's going to be a school-by-school basis. And we still haven't received word on that for West Virginia on when that'll be. Highly unusual that there are on West Virginia's campus 14 sports that will play in August, September, October, or November. 11 of them will play before football, excuse me, before basketball and men's and women's basketball and yet those are the only three that are on campus right now i'm pretty sure men's soccer women's soccer you know all those other sports i'm pretty sure they need something in the summer but perhaps not as much as football in the two basketballs is there uh, what are you saying mike is, is there a some kind of statistic out there that lists those three schools at the top of something and, and what would that be a uh, shift four you ever done that in a keyboard <laughs> no what is that oh it's a dollar it sign now. it's a dollar sign it's a dollar uh sign. that would be my answer because uh, i mean this is highly conspiratorial but sue me football makes the money for um the fbs and the fcs and basketball makes the money for division one and this is a division one football co-op decision here so i mean i'm assuming that they want to protect their interests or their investments there and get them back soon later. But uh, I think a lot of coaches had conceded this that I talked to. And then even, I guess it was Wednesday, women's soccer coach, Nikki Izzo Brown. She had mentioned that she knows football makes everything possible and that they're going to go first and see what happens. I would say that she had some intel on this because it was later that day or a day after. I can't remember now at this point. Later that day, that's exactly what happened. Football and men's and women's basketball were allowed back. All the other sports are going to have to funnel in behind them in line. But I think part of this is too, that let's see how this works. And the most intricate operations are going to be definitely football, but also the basketball ones too, as far as what they need, the coordination, the execution, all that stuff. So let's see how it works. And then, you know, some of those trainers and some of those uh, dietitians and some of those academic people, they overlap with other sports too. So if they hit the ground running or if they're not inundated and overwhelmed at once, they get kind of a, a crash course and they smooth things out, then it'll be easier to bring everybody back too. So yeah, cynical, but there's probably some strategy involved too. I hate to admit it, but it's probably not as bad as I'd make it seem. Yeah. And I've, I, for our VIP members, I, I shared a little bit of a tidbit. I reached out to 
the Duke Daikon team that Neil Brown had alluded to. Uh, it is a separate entity from the Duke Daikon that that it's a special a group of doctors at Duke that specializes in this sort of infection control is what it is. And they are contracted with the Big 12. They're contracted with the NFL to evaluate how to return to play. And I asked, you know, why football, basketball, and basketball, you know, men's basketball and women's basketball? Is there a reason? And I'm very curious what the answer is going to be. I had a lot of questions to follow up. I, we got the initial, you know, kind of uh, frequently asked question background um, document uh, to start off my conversation with them. And it, I'm, like I said, there's a lot of questions. I sent it to you. It, was there anything that stuck out to you when you read that? Or, or we kind of going down the same path of the questions we need answered? Cause there's a lot of follow-ups. Yeah. I'm, it's impressive. The people that are there just going through some biographies and I can see why the NFL, never mind the big 12 would align with them. Uh, this is an important time. And again, if you got a lot of followers on Twitter or if you have, you know, hot takes about reality TV shows, that doesn't make you the czar of COVID uh, information. So I like to sit back and like let other people tell me what to do and what I should do. Uh, I would think that by all observations, Big 12 presidents and chancellors and athletic directors and head coaches are doing the same. So get the best people in the room. This seems to be it. What what I'm curious about is the, the there's two disciplines here, and you and I talked about this in our conversation. There's two different disciplines here. There's the the, the health, and I'm using that in air quotes here on my office, the health of student-athletes on the field, which is strength, conditioning, weight training, endurance, all that stuff, and that's going to require specific uh, prescriptions, treatment right now because it's going to be condensed. It's not ideal. So how do you do that and make sure everybody's ready and also not more vulnerable because of how they got ready? And then similarly, there's the other quote-unquote health of student-athletes that has to do with this virus. And I'm not going to get into all the stuff about more or less vulnerable, more or less potent as a carrier or a spreader, because I don't know enough about that, and I don't have enough information <laughs> that I trust on it. I, I'm just talking about, like, it could happen and when you add all these people back on campus. So there's just two different, quotes again, health dynamics that they're not really parallel, but they're not perpendicular either. How do they let those two hold hands as they go through this process and make sure that they're maxing out monitoring and and protection and enhancement for each of those? I don't know. That's pretty interesting to me. Yeah, hopefully we'll find out soon. And I think uh, I imagine that the Big 12 conference is going to have some discussions on this. And then, as you noted in your story the other day, it, it's really going to come down to West Virginia, the state, and West Virginia, the university, to determine when exactly these guys get back on campus, voluntarily get back on campus. Still uneasy about that word, though. I don't know <laughs> what that means. What do you think voluntary means? Uh, I don't know. I think they will give guys some leeway. I, I Neil Brown doesn't strike me as somebody that's going to, you know, say – you can voluntarily come back, and if some guy does not feel comfortable coming back for another couple of weeks, um, you know we keep hearing the the two week deadline, uh, the two week um, timeline there of of quarantining yourself or how long it's it it can spread or it's infectious. Excuse me, and maybe there's some people that are like, hey, I want everybody else to get there, and then in two weeks I'll come just to make sure that nothing happens and. 
I could see that, and he doesn't strike me as somebody that would be like, okay, yeah, you could do that. And then when that guy gets on campus, he's got to pay for it, basically. I think he'll legitimately let guys come in at their own pace. But I also believe it's 99% of the players are going to be like, oh, thank God, I'm back, and and show up the very first day. A lot of them are here. I don't know what the number is, but I bet you half the team is on campus for football. I would I would be interested in the actual number, but like just from what I knew before talking to people, what I've seen recently, there's a lot of people on campus already, so that's good. I wonder if it takes time for people to get plane tickets to pack. Uh, they may have jobs at home. They need the paycheck. Perhaps they're trying to help their family. It, it's Again, we talked about this before, too. It's not a decision you make on May 31st and say, hey, come back on june 1st so that's good that they have some runway too but um i think you're right everybody will want to be here and that's probably another reason why you don't bring everybody back at once there's i think what 700 student athletes on campus um mm. that's not a huge a huge boom but i'm telling you like there's more people in morgantown today than there were a week ago and it's it's a noticeable difference so let's face it if you if you say come back to campus on june 1st for student athletes that's a checkered flag for everybody to come back to. And you got to be careful with things like that. Um, a slight spike in cases in the state. I think that's mostly an area of concern being the panhandle region, region in the north where um, they're kind of looking at that. So not a direct threat to Morgantown, but maybe that's out of state because there's a high level of population and commerce in that area that people go across into other states and it still counts. I get that, but you wonder coming back. Is that something that you really got to be careful of? Truth be told, you're not going to know for a couple of weeks what any type of effect um, population or migration has. So maybe right now, since this has started opening up in the past uh, seven to 10 days or so with more ambitious social practices, maybe they know more on June 1st or sometime closer to June 1st. And they can say, Hey, we're good on June 8th. Hey, we're good on June 15th. Still yet to be written, but again, it seems like every week's an important week, but just because they made the decision, this is a pretty important week here. Um, workouts, though, do you see anything in particular for workouts? I think part of this is just that it lets conferences get their schools back if they're ready without making everybody more conflicted or more contentious about other schools and conferences not being ready. So, for example, if you have a voluntary June 1 date for the SEC and they're ready to go, but maybe you don't have mandatory quote unquote team activities like a practice setting on June 1st, but the concession being, all right, everybody come back on June 1st if you want to, and we'll have a universal date later in the month for everybody. This gives everybody a cushion of time to get their act together and to get there. Um, but also you can actually do some physical stuff during this time. I don't know, relative to football and basketball, what, what is that you think? I think those first few days, it's going to be a lot of more solo activities or extremely small groups because I think they're going to want everybody. Because again, every uh, I, you noted, I, I didn't realize this that half the team was kind of, or I guess you know a good portion of the team is probably still there in Morgantown, but then the other guys that aren't, they're coming from all over the country, and who knows how well they've socially distanced themselves or who they've been around or what they're doing. Um, and so I think once they first get back that first week or two, you're going to see a lot of, Hey, you can come in and you can get your food. You can work out in the weight room, especially now that, uh, you know, they changed the CDC guidelines this week that say that, Hey, this, this virus actually does not, um, 
transmit like very well on surfaces. Uh, so I think, you, you know, they might open up that for, Hey, you guys come in, here's a sheet to sign up to come in and work out only a handful of guys at a time. A handful of guys can come in to eat and you got to be spread out. Handful of guys can come out and work on the field and so on for at least a week or two before they start ramping up more position group meetings and team meetings. So I think it's going to still be a lot of separate uh, separation, a lot of individual work, but it will be on campus and they'll have the full access to all the resources that, you know, being on campus provides for these student athletes. Yeah. That that point you mentioned about the CDC and the on-surface spread is really important as it relates to gyms and fitness centers and, and the like, because that's what coaches and players want to get back right now is um, upper body strength, lower body strength, the physical fitness that you have to have to practice football, never mind play football. So that's encouraging. And I think that that's good news for people who are on the fence about coming back. Like, hey, my, my local gym is closed, but I can get things done in my garage. I'm not going back to WVU yet until, you know, it's it's more clear what the picture is. Well, that helps, I think, and that may make people a little bit less hesitant. It may make parents a little bit less hesitant, too. Let's not forget they have a say in this as well. So that's that's good news, I think. But the, the other thing I wonder is, don't you have to make your strength and conditioning workouts under Mike Joseph's supervision? Like, it's not, I understand throwing a football and tackling and blocking and, you know, backpedaling and, and football stuff, but he's also technically a football coach in the sense that he's not supposed to be involved right now. But if you're bringing people back to campus and you're really concerned about student athletes and their preparedness, wouldn't it make sense to let him oversee or administer or, or at least have some sort of management of the strength and conditioning for football. And the same thing for the strength coaches for basketball too. Yeah, I think so. I think he has to be, um, a, and that I think that kind of falls under the category of the resources that I was talking about. I don't know how he'd be doing that because obviously, if you're taking all the all the players and spreading them out, so not you know that what hundred hundred or so players counting walk-ons and everything, and then uh, usually they split it up into a handful of groups, like ten groups or so. But instead of that, you you might be splitting it up even more. You're going to be asking Mike Joseph to stand there for. 14 hours a day almost trying to get make sure he's there for everybody um so i don't know how it would work exactly but i do feel like he has to be there they might have to tweak those rules a little bit to let him give some kind of oversight hopefully and you worry about i mean bad things can happen if you if you overdo it and if you accelerate your your return to fitness um radbo what's the name of that um it's a really long word that it's something that strength coaches are scared to death of because people overdo it um, and your body's not prepared for it. And it goes into like a state of arrest where, you know, people get sick from it and bad things happen. And then all of a sudden you're set back. And if you let people back on campus and do stuff on their own without any type of supervision, I'm not saying you risk that, but like those are things people worry about because if they have all these resources and they're back on campus for the first time, kicking candy store kind of mentality can come in. And it just seems like it's inconsistent to say, Hey, you're, you're allowed back here gyms are open you can do things in small groups but no you still can't work with your strength and conditioning coach i really hope that's addressed um so we'll see that's interesting i think that because it's a good development the word voluntary kind of worries me but i think it's maybe in in good spirit um but again if you look closely you can kind of see an end there and then this really works well because at west virginia they were talking like beginning middle of july to get things going again this is certainly ahead of schedule so um not best case, but certainly not worst case either. That's a 
finally some good news, I think, when it comes to this persistent question mark we've had at the end of every conversation we've had. Yeah. Moving forward, though. Oh, go ahead. Uh, uh, Rhabdomyolysis. My, myelosis. The word yeah. I think you were looking for. I'm certain you didn't Google that. You just knew that off the top <laughs> of your head, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I was trying to do it actually when you were talking, and I kept getting Rambo and Sylvester Stallone workouts and everything like that. And I was like, this is not what I'm looking for, but I'll come back to this later for sure. <laughs> uh, quick um, housekeeping commercial. Today's Friday, last day of 60% off for a subscription. I did the math in my head. We still have work to do today. But since our first day of separation on March 12, 437 stories. That's over six a day. Um, and that number will go up because I have a couple things left and you have a couple things left today. So everything we do that is behind the paywall, you could have for 60% off. What's our split? We're, we, we're actually accused of doing too much behind the paywall, correct? Uh, I don't know. I think we're about 50-50, maybe a little more towards VIP. Um, I, I'll have to check, but I, it, at, it's at least 50% of our content is VIP. It might be closer to 60-65%. So can I uh, can I do one more tease? Go. June third. What Gold. do you think? Oh yeah, uh, you might want to be a member just for that. Uh, not to say Mike and I's work's not worth it, but you might want to be a VIP member before June third. So I'll, I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> it's something that's almost unprecedented that we're gonna try. And it's it's so it's so important that they're not letting you or me have anything to do with it. Like it just can't be screwed <laughs> up. That's how that's how delicate it is. It's that important to the to the world. Uh, June third, we'll have more details on it. Probably beginning Wednesday of next week. But it's a cool thing that that kind of came out of. Um, there's a, there's a fun backstory to it. Just a would you ever think of this? And the answer was tell me more. And then all of a sudden, um, weeks and weeks of conversation, intense negotiations. Um, Similar to like Reykjavik, you know, it was a, uh, it was it was a long, long story, and long story short, it'll come to fruition on the uh, June third, taken like middle of the afternoon. So clear your calendars if you don't have anything to do, which would have been really easy like three weeks ago, six weeks ago, but maybe people are more busy now. I'm gonna have to clear the schedule from, I don't know, more uh, more enjoyable, more social things here, but that is something to to keep an eye on on june 3rd as well last one on the football and then i understand you have something you want to go to the uh return would presumably mean that your unenrolled players can be on campus um i haven't seen clarity on that but i just think that's kind of logical so west virginia has uh 17 i think 15 signed players two transfers who are just kind of out in the wind they can be back presumably whenever the team comes back so maybe not june one but maybe not long after that too Really good news for a couple of people in a couple positions. Uh, no prep for you on this, Chris, but when you think about the players who signed and aren't here yet or who are transfers and aren't here yet, who or what positions stand to benefit the most by being back, like we said, weeks probably sooner than West Virginia initially expected? I, I think obviously the transfers are going to make a bigger impact likely than some of these other guys, but Scotty Young Jr. really kind of stands out to me because – I think there's so many different ways they can use him in this defense and so many different ways they can shore up different positions or try him at certain spots, maybe even have him as a starter. And, uh, 
you know, when he committed and I spoke with him last week, he said, Hey, I'm, I'm getting all the paperwork done. I'm getting enrolled to take online classes right away at that first summer session. I, I assume is that first week of June, right? I believe it's Monday. It starts. Is it Monday? Um, so he's going to be enrolled and ready for that already. And then he's like, he's going to take his online classes. And as soon as he gets the go ahead to show up in person, he said he's going to be there. So I think getting him on campus and figuring out how he fits in with this defense and where he's going to best help is is key for having this extra time. Uh, my mistake. The first summer schools are, are strange here. There's rolling sessions. The first one started on Monday, May 18th. The second one will start, I guess, Tuesday of next week. But he's okay. probably talking about the first the first full three week one is going to be on June 1st, I think. So you're right. Um, that'll be soon. So that's a good one. Offensive line. Listen, if they're not going to add a guy or if a guy that they're going to add is going to arrive later, um, I'm not saying that you're expecting like a Tariq Stewart to play, but man, the sooner you get somebody who's a little bit more physically prepared, perhaps than other guys, that's good news. And then I don't know. I'm just, I'm looking at other people here. We've talked about the receivers before too. If, if for example, Sam Brown, who we both really like, if he can get on campus and, Around the same time that everybody else gets back to business, like I saw videos of Garrett Green. I don't think we expect him to be QB1, but I saw videos of him throwing with Sam James and Bryce Wheaton. Well, if Jared Dagey replaces that garbage can he's throwing to with a couple of teammates, <laughs> it's a lot better if it's Sam Brown than if it's, for example, Bryce Wheaton. Those are guys who could perhaps be competing against each other. That keeps Wheaton from distancing himself from a newcomer like Brown. It at least lets Brown maintain the gap that already exists there and perhaps close on it too. So I think especially skill positions, it's not as hard for them in that first year to play any type of runway they get is good. And then you look at maybe trenches and, you know, we talked about Sean Martin we've talked about Akeem Mesador, maybe like question marks as to playing time redshirt or how much playing time or what's the difference between playing and redshirting. It could be insignificant and they could turn those questions into, you know, exclamation points at this stage of the offseason, they just come in, they're ready, and they say, you know what, we know earlier than we thought otherwise that they'd be um, they'd be able to play just because they're getting a, a glimpse into it. So that's something to, to look at and think about now when we look about you know, what does this mean. We don't know, but the obvious thing is that, again, they're looking at a couple of weeks sooner than they expected, and that's a chance for players to get to know each other, for coaches to get to know players. And I think more importantly to see who really took care of themselves and who took this 10-week period seriously because – if you're accountable, you're going to get rewarded by this coaching staff. Well, that's where the accountability teams come in, Mike, or maybe not, depending on NCAA rules, I guess. But I, it's interesting because I, I don't. Obviously, not everybody's going to. Not everyone is going to. Period. Uh, you know, keep up throughout that whole process, and so I think it's a question of which players did. Like, is it your key players at your key positions, or is it? you know, a third string backup that, that kind of slacked off. So um, the coaches will find out a lot faster than we will. That's true. That's true. Uh, although I understand they're going to have a pretty accommodating media plan when everything's going to going again, or at least that's the idea right now. Like, who knows how it looks, but they're going to try to keep everybody updated and, and go from there. Uh, we're going to wrap up here. You have something you want to get off your chest. Yeah. This might fall under the same category as uh, the last time I threw this at you. Uh, I thought it was a hot take, and you eviscerated me with uh, your comment that you like to take my take, slice it up, and drop it into a nice glass of tea. It was so cold. 
Um, so maybe this is another lukewarm take and maybe this segment will last a minute and a half. Uh, maybe it'll lead to more discussion, but it's somewhat related to that last take. That last take was this year's defensive line is going to be the best WVU defensive line since 2010. Speaking of 2010, I would like to declare that the 2010 West Virginia football team, this is kind of a two-parter because I think the first part might be a little almost beyond lukewarm, maybe even cold, just like you said. The most disappointing team of the ever? Of this of the century of of ever uh, for West Virginia, I, I'm not speaking for other schools, but let's start there. Is it the most? I mean, it went nine and four, so it's not horrible. But could you say that that was about the most disappointing nine and four season ever? Was it? Th- this team was way too talented to not only win the Big East, which they did not, but that should have been like an 11 and one regular season type team. Your thoughts. Yeah. Uh, they could have beaten LSU down to Baton Rouge. I specifically remember that. Like that was a crazy game that I think just turnovers were an issue. Um, darn near lost to Marshall, which would have been just the end of everything. I mean, you think about all the superiority complexes that West Virginia had through the years about, you know, never lost to this team, never did that, you know, that would have been a bad one. Like I think losing to UConn later in the season kind of kind of pierced a lot of that stuff. Like West Virginia was a Northeast power in football for a long, long time, like relative to that corner of the country. Um, so games against Boston College and UConn and Rutgers and Syracuse, those were all really important because that's where they played a whole bunch. But what I remember from that year is that it was all falling apart, like their grip on that, which again, the past was not part of the present back then, but you realize it was getting away and the game was advancing at a rate that West Virginia couldn't keep up with. Um, that was right about the time where like points per game became really, really important. I still think that's the most important stat. And I think it started to change that way right around that time. I mean, obviously you have to score more to win, but you know, the things that they were trying to do were not conducive to that. And they were like, you know, we got a great defense. We'll win games by allowing a few points. And they had a great scoring defense, correct? I think they had one yeah, of the best scoring number, defenses in the country, but also how good number three in the country. Yeah, so pretty good. And I can remember Jock Sanders saying, just give us 20 points and we're good. And the trouble was that, like, they had a hard time getting there sometimes. So I'm looking at their scores now. Um, 14 against LSU, but they held LSU to 20 at LSU. Um, 20, but beat USF. 14, lost to Syracuse. 13, lost to UConn. 17, beat Louisville. So, again, their idea. I think of what was successful probably too utopian for that time like it wasn't the way the world was being um operated around them everybody was getting in the left lane and going places the west virginia was very comfortable and very good at being in the right lane but you could catch up to teams like that um and it's supposedly exciting too and the guy who was in charge the athletic director really thought that you had to excite people and bring them to the stands and, and to watch the games and that was not part of his plan right there but it's a good question I, um, I think just I just think it's disappointing because like you could see the game changing, and they were not astride with the changes, and disappointing because teams that they always beat or they could count on beating, like they were losing it, and it was how they were losing too, like not losing shootouts but losing like in overtime by turnovers, losing you know five point games when you only score two touchdowns. That was disappointing. So let me run this this offense one of the 
were I, I mean, I think technically it ranked in the middle of the country or a middle, I guess, 70th out of 120 some teams. And as you noted, there were, the defense was so good. Number three in the country, but out of from the 2010 and then to the 2011 team that went on and scored 70 points in the orange bowl, obviously under Holgerson with a different offense, but it had seven of 11 of the same starters. The only differences were for 2010 at running, the starting running back was Noel Devine. And then it became my kind of a hodgepodge of guys, but Dustin Garrison mostly uh, traded Jock Sanders for Ivan McCartney, Eric Joby for Tyler Rader and Josh Jenkins for a, a kind of raw Pat Ager. That 2010 offense is better. It should have been better. Like Divine better than Garrison, Sanders better than McCartney, Joby better than Raider, Jenkins, like a senior Jenkins over, uh, what was that a sophomore Ager, Eager? Mm-hmm. Um, that should have been better. And I mean, you go up and down that starting lineup for 2010, it is, it is basically our entire, when we were trying to make our all century team, every single player on this list was part of a, that exercise. Every single player on the entire offense and defense. And I think if you go back and look at, I, I need to go back and do this, but um, just off the top of my head, just looking at it, probably more guys that played in the NFL in that starting roster than any other, you know, full 22 or so than any other team this century. It was loaded. Uh, it's hard to argue. I remember the first game, but they knew they were going to have a really good defense and they were going to be like a defense first team. They can control the game that way. And they played Coastal Carolina. Coastal Carolina, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And they won, won 31 nothing, And all of a sudden, everything was validated about their defense. Like, you're supposed to beat and crush FCS teams. And they did. It was 31 nothing, and it was it was exactly like what was supposed to happen. And that validated the offense. They went to Marshall. They really should have lost that game. But they came back because Geno had two extraordinary drives. And I can remember coming out of that game asking, like, hey, you got to let it rip, right? Like, you have unique offensive skill talent here you can still play defense with the same guys on defense but why not like what we saw in two or three possessions in that fourth quarter that seems like a good way to go and i don't know if they just didn't trust gino or didn't know how good he could be and how fast he could reach out a level but his job is a lot easier with those players around him and as you mentioned like he had really good talent to work with um but he just never got I felt like he never really got a chance early in the season later on for sure, but it was almost too late at that point. But that those that end of that game against Marshall, I thought there was like a an intersection there for the coaches to consider about do we continue here or do we maybe deviate a little bit and say, listen, we have a pretty special player who's surrounded by other very, very good players. Let's see where it goes. I think he could probably do that early in the season. And then who knows what happens? There's two great what ifs there. What if they lose that game? But also, what if they come out of the game and say, listen, this is number 12's team. Let's see what happens. Yeah. Geno Smith, Noel Devine, Stedman Bailey, Tavon Austin, Jock Sanders. Those are your quarterback, running back, three receivers. Your tight end, Will Johnson, who went on to an extended NFL career. Uh, Tyler Urban kind of mixing in with him as a more traditional tight end. You got Sean Austin as your backup, bigger running back. I mean, this was a... The more I look at it, I mean, I'm sure this is going to bring back more hard feelings for a lot of people, for old Jeff Mullins, as they say. Um, but I, I, 
I, I thought about it more and more when I, I discussed that 2010 defensive line. I was like, man, look who else is on this team. And kind of just rolled through that whole starting lineup because offensive line, Don Barclay, Jeff Braun, Joe Madsen, Eric Joby, Josh Jenkins. Uh, defense was amazing. Barry, Neal, and Julian Miller on defensive line. Uh, the whole linebacking core saw time in the NFL. Najee Good, Anthony Leonard, JT Thomas, uh, Brandon Hogan, and Keith Tandy, two NFL draft picks at corner. Safety, Terrence Garvin, NFL player, Sidney Glover, and a senior, Sidney Glover, and Robert Sands, who I think, was that his freshman All-American season, or was this his sophomore year? I, that was, was his freshman That was his freshman season, right? Because he was a sophomore when they lost to – no, no, he, this would have been his last season because he was a okay. sophomore yeah, that's when they lost a, yeah, to Florida in that bowl game. Yeah. yeah. If, you started, if you started a team right now with rosters from the past, again – what we're talking here 15 years that's probably the team you would start with right yeah i think it is i think there's i as i say that was my first part of this lukewarm take was the 2010 team was the most disappointing team of at least this century maybe in wv football history once you get past that i think you're getting out of my realm of of knowledge but maybe the second the second part is i think this team might be I certainly think this team is more talented than the 2011 team that won the Orange Bowl and might be as talented, like just pure talent um, and, and potential more talent than than some of those mid-2000 teams. And maybe that, that might be stretching it. I think that might be uh, bothering some people, but maybe that's, that takes getting hotter and hotter with that side. Mm. 2008 was disappointing in a sense that I don't think that team was as good as the 2007 team, and I don't think people recognize that. And then it was not helped by the coaching change, and that that balloon burst really early. But I think that what's different there is that the, you were so close to winning everything the year before, and then so quickly it falls apart. That's just sudden disappointment. What's uniquely disappointing about 2010 is that part of the plan was let's get back on our feet and we'll be good by 2010. That was the year they, they kind of circled. And they had a chance. I mean, they were they they could have been really good, but they just never got themselves in that forward momentum position. Um, again, if you if you take care of business and you you beat LSU, number fifteen, I want to say their top fifteen team on the road. Uh, yeah, number fifteen. That changes everything. That really legitimizes a lot of stuff. And perhaps you're so good at that point that you're not worried about some of the dregs in your schedule later on. But um, one name you mentioned there, and this is probably the captain of the what are we doing? with this guy team um, when, when you go to practices or you talk to players or people who watch practices and you say, what are we doing with this guy? There's one guy on that team, one name that you mentioned, and that's probably the one name that the one big, what if from that three year period, can you guess who I'm talking about? Will Johnson. Yep. I knew, I know you love him. I knew you did. He was, he was like, like a pretty gifted player, not small enough to be like, a slot receiver, not tall enough to be a tight end. They had him playing fullback and blocking, but I mean, guys saw that and knew he had something. He was he was just a gifted physical player, um, and a physically gifted player. And so sometimes people would be like, "What are we doing with this guy? Like, he's one of our definitely one of our five best skill guys, and we got him in a three point stance, or we got him in a half split in the backfield." And you're just like, "Something is inconsistent here. <laughs> we got to figure out what to do." Um, the one thing they did that was smart though was they didn't have Tavon lined up as an outside receiver. They brought him into the slot and let him make plays. And um, that was kind of a, a good thing there because he was an outside receiver initially. 
in addition to being a, a guy who was, you know, maybe the best running back in the history of Maryland high school football, too, and he came in in his first year, he was an outside receiver. Oh, yeah. I remember there was a a, a very heated debate when he was a recruit because I believe the old Scout Network, which is now, you know, merged with us, had him as a five-star running back, and they were adamant that he was a running back. He would play running back. That was where he should play at the next level. Other places had him as a four-star receiver, felt like he was the perfect slot. Um, maybe both were right. Maybe he is a five-star running back and a four-star receiver, maybe even five-star receiver, I think, once you get to the production. But, man, something special. And and it, that's one of those where you really have to pay attention. Not, I guess we're getting off on a tangent here, but don't you recall <laughs> some of the things said during that that first – even when he first got on the campus? And it's like, how are you talking about a true freshman like this? And then – they were like, you can't tackle this guy in a phone booth and all those kind of comments. And and you're like, well, if a coach starts saying something about that is before his freshman year, before he's ever stepped the foot on the field, and you know how co- careful coaches are about talking about guys who haven't played yet or don't play a lot, um, you should take note of that and, and realize that that kid's going to be special. Yep. I uh, I got lectured once when I worked at the newspaper because when he committed, I didn't make a very big deal out of it. We just we did not have a consistent plan of covering recruiting, and I, this I forget when he fall I guess, and I was more focused on basketball at that point. So when we got to see him the first time, uh, I just had like a an animosity toward him because I got into trouble for not making a big deal out of his recruiting. That quickly went away because. The first couple times you see him, you're like, holy cow, this guy's got some juice that 95% of the people on this field cannot match, never mind top. Um, and right away, you could tell he was going to be good. So, yeah, one of those talents, again, that w- was surrounded by some other pretty good talent, in most especially in that 2010 year you're talking about. Took a while to get going, but he did finally get it going. Yeah. I'm just glad I it's could a, take That's a warmer to... take, by the way. <laughs> Well, I'm just glad we could take this time to to bring back everybody's PTSD about the 2010 season and that offense. Uh, it, you're welcome. It's it's a fascinating season. Like every game is a story, and so much stuff behind the scenes before you even get to the transition after the season. Like just some weird, bizarre stuff that you could dedicate an entire series of podcasts to because it was just that that unique. And we're probably going to see a lot of like memorialization of that season. Cause we're in that 10 year anniversary period. So buckle up for that. If you had the PTSD, um, get ready to cope with it. Cause you're probably going to see a lot of 10 year anniversary pieces and series coming up soon. Shoot. <laughs> Cheers. Yeah. Let's, let's end right. it on that Chris, note. Chris has a busy day. I have a busy day. Um, and then I don't know, we'll probably try to throw together another week next week. Once we get a, recover from this weekend coming up here so um i have nothing else you have nothing else oh go Uh, ahead yeah i'm sorry uh we just discussed the entire 2010 wv football team the starters how loaded it was and made zero mention of nation leading sack man bruce Irvin, 14 sacks and and I mean, obviously, I think he was like uh, one of the big stars and and talking points of that defense. But even without even mentioning him, you look at that team and say this team's loaded. And then, hey, don't forget Bruce Irvin, fourteen freaking sacks in limited snaps. So specialist. I just wanted to make sure I didn't forget that one. A lot of meat on that bone. You could spend a whole summer talking about it if you want to. But um, 
hey, that's still a couple weeks away, so who knows. Um, but that's it for this time. We will see you next time for earsports.com. I'm Mike Casaza. And I'm Chris Anderson. We'll talk to you later.